You keep saying you got something for me. Something we call love, but confess. You've been looking away, you shouldn't have been looking. Now someone else is getting all your best. These boots are made for walking. That's just what they'll do. One of these days, these boots are gonna walk all over you. You keep saying when you ought to be changing. And you keep thinking that you'll never get burned. But I just bought me a brand new box of matches. What I know, you ain't had time to learn. These boots are made for walking. And that's just what they'll do. One of these days, these boots are gonna walk all over. Are you ready, boots? Start walking. Hi, folks. Today we are talking about chapters three and four of Sam Gindin and Leo Panitch's Making of Global Capitalism. For once I said it correctly. Making of, not rise of. It's not the goddamn uh, Star Wars universe. It would be funny if it was called, like, The Making of the Jedi instead of, or The Making of the Skywalkers instead of Rise of Skywalker. Um, so this is a chapter where, after having in the first two chapters laid out the way that the American state capacity uh, to intervene in a global economy was built during uh, uh, the 19th century and then, crucially, uh, the period between World War I and World War II. Uh, and after World War I, the U.S. Uh, had an incredibly important and influential, and you could argue uh, uh, preeminent position in the global economy. Like that is World War I, after World War I is when America becomes a global creditor and not a debtor for the first time. But the capacity, which you know existed to create a domestic democ- uh, capitalism by that point, did not exist to really impose a U.S.-led international settlement on the world. Instead, you had uh, a British-led you know, uh, global trade network that was still based on spheres of imperial influence. And when you know it, World War, the crisis of uh, the Great Depression comes along, the big collapse happens, and all of those tenuous networks of international cooperation snap, everyone turns inward, uh, they go to war again, inevitably, as well, it has to happen, because uh, in those kind of crises, you have a, a unsustainable internal pressures that have to be reckoned with. You can either have a revolution or you can have a war, one or the other. No opting out of it when you have that level of crisis in, in uh, conditions that capitalism will not, uh, cannot assimilate. And at the end of that war, who's the last man standing? The U.S. of A, baby. And so now we get a situation where a U.S. state that has grown massively in its internal capacity, its ability to regulate, its, its ability to manage economic structures uh, because of this explosion in bureaucracy and, uh, and not just like in the public sector, but like uh, the, the management revolution among capitalist enterprises means you have this 
and also something that's not spoken of too much about this period is that during the massive wartime capital accumulations that are occurring, uh, what do you know it? You have a huge technological uh, boom, too. So there's this second industrial revolution in chemical uh, transportation and uh, t- um, communication technology that happens in the 30s to the 40s uh, that then also allows for state capacity to be uh, magnified. And therefore, now we have a country, we have a situation finally, after one more giant global war that nearly kills everybody, uh, we finally have a situation where the United States has sufficient internal uh, uh, domestic political capacity, bureaucratic capacity, uh, and, and currency, and a currency uh, that can manage a, lo- a global capitalist economy. And we have a situation where the U.S. state has to take point here because even though it is in the best interest of capitalism in general for uh, Europe to be rebuilt and for free trade or some, some, some regime of like uh, a relatively unrestricted trade to be enforced, there are still elements within capitalism who are threatened by what that would mean and who resist it. And whereas the formal state after World War I wasn't strong enough to really push through that, this formal state that exists now has by far uh, sufficient capacity to overcome those uh, those unorganized individual like interest groupings and point them towards uh, a a new horizon of global capitalism. So the model for this new new global capitalism is, of course, going to be the American New Deal regulatory state because that's who's going to be imposing it. Who else would they fucking get any ideas from? They just did this in America. Now they're going to export it to the world, uh, and that means. We're going to have capitalism, but it's going to be capitalism that is checked by regulatory agencies and a general redistributive, redistributive political economy where the, where the laboring classes will, having lost their political power, like their ability to like assert uh, you know, control over conditions of manufacture, which they were threatening to you know, grasp there during World War II, uh, that's gone. But what will be left is this mechanism where they can make demands of cap of uh, profit. They can say, we have a percentage of this profit. We are owed it. And the political structures that will be brought into being will allow for those demands to be uh, taken into consideration by uh, people at the heights of the political economy, which did not was not true uh, before this point, and which is why you kept having this cycle cycle of massive economic collapses and warfare. Now, the State Department, which you would think would have been riding herd on this. Uh, during the war is basically not involved. It's it's the project of the Treasury Department under the direction of the guy I talked about last time, Harry Dexter White, who was this blue blood uh, New Dealer who uh, helped shape the agreement to come and who was, I guess it's not fully confirmed. There's still some people who don't buy the evidence, but 
he's widely considered to be and suspected to be an actual Soviet spy, uh, which is very funny, of course. So it was the Treasury Department that quarterbacked the Bretton Woods Agreement, which is the structure that will facilitate the creation of a global capitalism after World War II. By, uh, and what it's going to do is it's going to facilitate investment in European economies uh, that will guarantee U.S. capital, building back up the, uh, the destroyed nation-states of Europe, but, giving, but creating uh, systems within them where uh, fiscal discipline, this is the word that they always talk about, uh, is always imposed uh, from the central node of Washington, basically. Uh, getting rid of the spheres of influence, getting a relatively equalized market with all rules imposed by the United States. Uh, and the one and the thing and there are institutions that were built that were that were going to do this, like the World Bank and the IMF, which are going to guarantee private loans uh, to European governments uh, on conditions of like certain structural relationships within their economies, uh, and more than anything, ensuring that capital controls, that is, a government's ability to stop for uh, stop people with capital, uh, foreign investors and domestic ones from moving their capital out of the country, which is what you do if you're a capitalist and you don't like what the government's doing. It is the final veto. I, I don't know how well this is understood, but the final veto, forgetting all of their control over uh, an, in, an outsized influence over political outcomes, the final veto that capital, concentrated capital, has over government policy, discrete nation-state policy, is capital flight, leaving. And capital controls prevent that. And one of the reasons that Wall Street was tepid about Bretton Woods and actually had to sort of be corralled by uh, the U.S. government on it uh, was because they were afraid that these new institutions would allow for capital controls uh, would guarantee that would would uh, make it so that the money that went into Europe wouldn't be able to get back out again, uh, and worst of all, that these governments might pursue full employment over price stability, because those are the two things you can pursue as like a Nash. If you are going to uh, take the handles of a gov- of a uh, of an economy, because what we're doing here with this new de- new uh, global capitalism is we're breaking the old, the spell of the British imperial uh, capitalist model. Like there was, the, the, the gold standard um, British trade imperium that ruled in the 19th century and was undone by the world wars was premised on a religious, ideological, deeply embedded, uh, uh, transcendent belief in the inviability of markets. Like they, you, you, you could... Uh, have some sort of government policy over overrolling markets, but of course, it would be malign inherently. There can be no uh, no virtuous intervention in the market. Of course, this is all fantasy. The state is making the market. The state is determining the conditions the market operates on. There is no separation. It is purely ideological. But who's going to tell these people that they're wrong? Who will they ever encounter that's going to say, actually, that's not true? Now, that becomes unsustainable after World War II. World War II proved the unsustainability of it. So now, this new, um, the new uh, truce 
the capital is willing to have with this emboldened government, uh, formal government structure, state structure, is to say, okay, fine. The government can intervene to set industrial policy. Now that that's settled, and we 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 we've we've we're willing to uh, to uh, we're, we're willing to stipulate that we can now assert that okay, there is inevitable intervention. There can be good or bad intervention because there's two things you can do with your overall like monetary policy, like the, the central bank authority that like regulates economic flows. You can you can orient it around full employment. Or you can orient it around preventing inflation, price stability, they call it. Because if you do have full employment, you're going to, uh, unless you expropriate, this is the thing, unless you expropriate from capital, you will have inflation. Now, of course, once again, well, why don't you expropriate from capital? The forces insisting upon that aren't on the stage. They're corralled in uh, the Soviet Union, and they're they're uh, hidden away in warrens. They're crypto uh uh, they might be there, like, as fellow travelers, but they cannot assert within the imperial core. They cannot assert an alternative to this because they have been defeated. Uh, but given the structure, if we're assuming capitalism cannot be violated, if we're assuming that the class structure of the societies, and then the greater global class structure of capitalists and 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 workers broadly, uh, capital and labor. Uh, if you assume that difference, that distinction, and you assume that dis- that uh, capital, that profits of production must flow to capital, then full employment will be inflation, which is why they cre- they were able to create in this era a new theology, where the great public, the cardinal virtue of a central banker or a regulator is to keep inflation low. Now, of course, again, they could have pursued, they could have used this new machinery to uh, create full employment. But the problem with that, the reason that that inevitably leads not to inflation, but to the expropriation of capitalism, is that you can't just have an economy. If, if your government is, uh, is imposing full employment, right, as its mandate, the question immediately becomes, employed doing what? And what that requires, answering that question requires, is a social project. Now, the problem with the Soviet Union is they never got to that level because the so the the, uh, the because the, the 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 World Revolution never happened and the tides went back and Russia was the only readout. Uh, the answer to that question, in Russia, was always uh, prevent being extinguished by the West. Compete uh, on capitalism's terms to to win in the world contest a battle against capitalism, which is why it's no coincidence that at the same time they're creating a productivist consumer economy in the West, Khrushchev is uh, transitioning Soviet policy around consumption in the East. But here we have at the creation uh, the the Secretary of State under Truman. Uh, Dean Acheson called his memoirs of this period present at the creation. Everyone understood that this is the forging of a new reality here. Um, so the idea of like using 
full employment to uh, essentially euthanize the rentiers, which Keynes always imagined being the 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 outcome of the reform road that he uh, envisioned. But because the people who could actually veto all of these uh, decisions made by the state, which are capitalists, not labor, uh, are obviously existentially opposed to that possibility, they impose a logic of price stability on these new uh, regulatory structures. And the thing that's going to do it is the U.S. dollar. That's what's going to uh, stand in as like the, 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 uh, our international tr- like, uh, economic Eucharist, this thing that, that holds the, the mystery that we cannot actually speak of that undergirds the theology of capitalism, which is always there, but which is by definition uh, sublimated because the, the, the fantasy of capitalism is that there is this desacralized market space that we operate in, but that just extra, uh, ab- abstracts uh, the sacred into uh, capitalist trade itself. Because as I said, if you have full employment as a, as a principle, then you have to answer the question, what do we, what are these people working on? What are they making? And that has to have a social answer. What capitalism does is it answers that question by uh, pointing towards the void capitalism creates. The answer in capitalism is, okay, no full employment. We're going to watch about mountain inflation, which guarantees reserve army and unemployment and all that. Uh, so what's going to guide production then? And the answer is consumption. You're going to build stuff for people to buy. Well, what are people going to buy? They're going to buy the stuff that assuages the alienation of living under capitalism, the inherent alienation of living in a, in a world where uh, one works on behalf of another. One spends their time, their labor time on earth, their essence, at the behest of someone else. And that is spiritual uh, uh, arsenic. And the whole, you know, the early 20th century was a battle about who was going to control uh, these, these newly created uh, technological regimes of uh, economic production. And the answer is the capitalists. But that there's still tons of workers, and in Europe especially, they are very organized a lot of the time, in the West even, with communist parties that were, saw their uh, influence rise during the war because they were the only ones. Excuse me. They were the only ones who actually fought the fucking fascists. Everybody else just uh, either collaborated or stood on the sidelines. And they're making demands on behalf of workers. Some demands are going to be vetoed by capital, but others are acceptable. And the big one that ends up defining the entire era is we, in exchange for essentially uh, politically neutering the working class, it happened in the U.S. with the second Red Scare, happens in uh, Europe, honestly, with like Gladio more than anything. Um, In exchange for that, though, you can sublimate that lost autonomy over your life that the political struggle would have provided with the ability to 
consume, the ability to pursue purchases that will make your life, the time you do spend outside of work, your unalienated time, but it's still alienated because you're thinking about the time that you spend elsewhere and you're dealing with the toll, the literal physical toll of having done that. But it makes that time disproportionately pleasurable. And this is, this is uh, that engine is what has fueled the economy uh, ever since the creation of this global system. And it is in fundamental uh, existential conflict with the biome, with the earth, with the, bio, the ecological matrix that we are inherently embedded in. Now, technology is trying to win a race with nature, basically. That's what the, the Elon Musk wing of capital, that, that, like the, the, the fantasy that we're, all tell, that we're all imbibing every day about how we're going to get out of this intractable conflict is the idea that capitalism or that technology will just outpace and outrun nature. It's done it so far, but we'll see if that's going to keep happening. <laughs> I think it's insane to, uh, to depend on it, which is all we're left with with capitalism. So there's this battle uh, that is, or I guess it's a, it's a sublimated battle because the war just happened. Nobody really wants to fight anymore. So what they do instead is, is that they, uh, they enter into this political negotiation that sees a, a treaty with the working class uh, made in the U.S. and in uh, Europe. And the difference in the structures that come out of that are reflected in the difference in the class composition and relative power of the competing class elements in these societies. So you want to know why don't we have all the cool stuff Europe does? It's because in the immediate aftermath of World War II, the working classes of Europe were more organized, more radical, uh, and uh, more socially uh, in solidarity uh, than, than uh, the American working class. Like they had, for example... Dedicated socialist parties, which could coordinate their actions in electoral lines. All we had in the United States is the Democrats, which were always, which were never a socialist party, whose associations with the uh, labor movement came at, long after the fact of the party's creation. I'm sorry, but the PMC is not what drives a wedge between the working classes. Or at least it's not the only thing that does so. In the American context, the working class has always been fatally uh, fractured by the reality of uh, slavery and expropriation. There have been efforts... As always a, a huge push to try to go against that tide with some effect, with some effect, and uh, uh, sometimes effective, some not. But that's just not something that uh, European working class politics had to deal with. It's playing it on easy mode, basically, compared to the U.S. And so everybody gets a, gets some sort of deal, all based on productivist consumer economies where we're making stuff. We're making big, durable goods for people to buy. 
we're going to the people who make them are then going to be uh, given enough money to be able to buy them and we're going to trade among nations and uh, when we we can we can offload surpluses and and deal with uh uh, uh with the the ever present capitalist danger of uh, overproduction through trade and we can do a balance of trade that that keeps uh relatively everybody uh, happy it keeps ca- capital flowing keeps profit accumulating and keeps some percentage of that capital flowing downward in the form of redistribution through high wages. So it's interesting, though, about the, uh, about the imposition of Bretton Woods, which as I, uh, is that it was uh, resisted by a lot of U.S. capital uh, because they were afraid of this these mechanisms being used to uh, pursue full employment and like regular, there's still regular uh, like reactionary middle-class voters who are like the center of gravity of one of the two political parties who are just psychically hostile to any notion of foreign entanglements and don't have the a familiarity with like the reality of global trade networks and finance and their necessity to keeping the capitalism that, they depend on, you know, the small business and small manufacturing capitalism that they depend on going. They don't know any of that. They fill in the gap of their ignorance with ideology, which is what we're doing all the time. Of course, our, our understanding and familiarity is ideologized too, but at a different level of abstraction. Here, because these people are fixed geographically in like the middle of the country for the most part, you know, Robert Taft representing Ohio, uh, they don't, they're, they're building it. Uh, their ideologized understanding of these concepts on a completely sand basis, whereas Eastern capitalists who end up going to war with them over American politics in the next decades uh, are at least dealing with like the re- the necess- necessary realities of building these institutions and keeping political uh, keeping uh, global capitalism going, and all these things. All these forces were arrayed the same way against the League of Nations, and then they were able to defeat it. The League of Nations failed to be ratified by the United States, and the United States never ended up joining it, even though it was Wilson's brainchild. Now, in contrast to that, the state capacity that has been built up and the technology that the state capacity can be utilized towards, like radio, for example, means that uh, cap the U.S. state can put on an unprecedented propaganda effort on behalf of Bretton Woods. TV, magazine, or not TV, but magazines, newsreels, radio ads, speeches, uh, tours. All you had with uh, League of Nations was poor-ass fucking Wilson going on a whistle-stop tour while dying of, uh, of strokes. There was no radio for him to go on. He just had to go place to place while his brain vessels were exploding. Here you could force multiply that message throughout uh, technology of mass media. And they were able to get Bretton Woods uh, pushed through. And uh, that is a dollar imperium uh, uh, administered by these new international institutions like the World Bank and the IMF and this thing called the Committee on Economic Development. which uh, was created in 1942 and which ended up sort of being the, uh, the, uh, the monastery uh, for uh, 
or I guess like the theological seminary for the distribution of the 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 uh, creation of uh, agents of a gospel of high productivity, high employment, uh, but a a baseline commitment to capitalism that is then imposed on the rest of Europe. Uh, Now, what that means, uh, but to get that uh, into Europe, what needs to be ha- what's that needs to happen is the United States economy has to be put on firm firm ground, and this is an important thing to remember. It's like all of this was based on the U.S.'s hugely powerful economic engine of this period, and the thing is, in the immediate post-war period, there was a real fear of another depression, because I mean, you had huge inflation right after the war. You had a huge strike wave as all of the uh, unions that had agreed to a no-strike pledge during the war to help win the war all started. To, like insisting on uh, making good all the things that had been uh, promised them and and then deferred. All those chickens came home to roost. 20% of the workforce was going to be reintegrated into it. Because that's that's how many that's the the percentage of uh, workers were represented by the demobilized army of the United States after World War II, uh, and and that the that basis was made by the deal I talked about earlier: labor peace, cheap mortgages for white workers, uh, uh, high wages connected to productivity, uh, and political. Uh, castration in the form of the second Red Scare. And that is what uh, then becomes the engine uh, of the post-war economy that spreads to Europe through Bretton Woods and uh, the Marshall Plan. So Bretton Woods uh, comes down to uh, creating a dollar imperium, right? Uh, which is a funny, it's a war between, uh, between our guy, uh, Harry Dexter White, and uh, John Maynard Keynes, who wants to use this, uh, this trade currency called the Bancor, which you could argue is just a way to keep the pound sterling on the table. Uh, but that's defeated. We get dollar hegemony. Uh, but then you have this remaining problem of, well, how do you pump up these ravaged European economies? And that is the other, the one-two punch of uh, Bretton Woods and the Marshall Plan. And the Marshall Plan is direct U.S. money pumped into the European economy. Uh, in 1948 and 1949, uh, uh, Marshall Plan money represents 15% of the GDPs of the U.K., Italy, and France. 25% of the GDP of West Germany. Uh And all of this money is dependent upon, you know, these economies that are being built back up, conforming to certain expectations of what uh, uh, 
of what a responsible, democratic, freedom-loving country is. And one of the big ways they do that is that uh, is that there's all these new orgs, these new organizations, and these new central banking institutions and lending institutions that are now all going to be staffed. And they're all staffed, not coincidentally, by ideologues of that religion of uh, inflation that I talked about, that sees inflation as sin because it sees uh, worker power over the economy as sin. The same way 19th century gold capitalism imagined intervening in the market as sin, that is no longer viable. Now, intervening in the market on behalf of workers is the sin. Intervening uh, into the economy, into the market, on behalf of capital in the form of fighting inflation, imposing uh, price stability, that is virtue. That is a, a, a... Aligning oneself to the will of God. Now, of course, the funny thing is, is that the Soviets asked, hey, we'll get that Marshall Plan. And, of course, you could say, oh, that's being disingenuous because they would have wanted, you know, to keep stampeding over Europe. But I really don't think that's true. I think the Soviet Union was willing to go to a a much more radical place of cooperation after the war. But the thing about that is it would have undermined capital's control over dictating these conditions, shaping this post-war world. And they didn't want to, and they didn't have to let that happen because the fucking Soviets were, they were exhausted. Couldn't protect, keep the war going. They didn't even have a nuke yet. And so now all these bankers were going to determine what these uh, these new economies and these new these newly pulled back up these newly affirmed states what they can do, and of course it's going to be on capitalism's terms, but with some formal uh, some formal mechanism for accommodating working class demands, but only in the in the direction of consumption. All right, so that brings us to Chapter 4, Launching Global Capitalism. So Bretton Woods, Marshall Plan, in, in, the, in the offices of the state and treasury, they build these uh, networks. They build, they, build, they build this program, the software. And then they got to actually uh, build the machine to run it, as in an actual uh, economy in Europe that can fix into the U.S. trade network. Because the thing that's motivating all of this is the understanding at the highest levels of U.S. government policy. That capitalism could not be sustained in the United States without capitalism being sustained in Western Europe. They understood that they were inextricably linked. Now, that right there, that understanding coming from, you know, imperial work towards the goal of winning a war, where the amount of ideological uh, mystification that you allow yourself uh, is, has to be minimized, still exists, never goes away. But at, a, at a, uh, a lower level of abstraction, or I'm sorry, a higher level of abstraction, 
that knowledge, that that reality, that experience, I should say above anything else, that experience of winning the war, of building the state capable of winning the war, did not happen in the hinterland of America, where America's uh, uh, reactionary political heart, uh, politics is going to emerge. And that now dominates the Republican Party. That was originally... Uh, uh, instantiated by Ohio uh, Republican Senator Robert Taft, who said, fuck all this, fuck Bretton Woods, fuck the UN, fuck international cooperation, because uh, we're going to keep American capitalism pure by keeping it uh, away from dirty foreigners. They didn't have the experience to know that that wasn't true. What they had instead to fill in the gap of experience was the ideologized fantasy of what American capitalism is. They can only be... Per- uh, Sustained by them because they're living Main Street USA lives where the violence of the system has been totally abstracted away from them and turned into uh, labor relations. And so that is where the resistance to this whole thing is going to emerge and is eventually going to take over the Republican Party and now dominates it and does want to see the global system of capitalism overthrown because they have an, an ideologized fantasy that they can maintain it uh, discreetly. Although I would argue at this point there are probably some like super rich Republicans, super rich guys like Peel, like the billionaires who support the Republican project. Uh, who know that that won't work but don't care because they think that they have accumulated enough personal capital to sustain capitalism in uh, in like isolated, suspended, geographically fixed regions. The archipelago of uh, capitalist uh, dominance, the eternal like luxury uh, uh, oasis that they think that they've uh, that they've been building so uh, so steadily. And so they don't care. They they. That's, but everyone below them actually thinks that there is something called like American capitalism that can sustain all the good things that they associate with it without uh, global flows, without the U.S. reserve currency. Can't be done. But they don't know that. So there's an interesting... Uh, Thing happens at the at uh, during this period where the U.S. is looking at this broken Europe, right? This Europe that has been completely shattered, uh, and it has to be rebuilt to reconnect it to the U.S.-led international capitalist system to circulate the goddamn fucking capital, which it has to do. It has to circulate, and it has to circulate at larger and larger intervals, more and more uh, elliptical and and uh, extended orbits. To that simple that signal that's that is its expansion that is the heart of it. Capital must flow and it has to flow over bigger and bigger circuits over time, and it has to start with Europe. Now, the U.S. could have imposed some sort of like post-national order on Europe and say, "Guess what? There are no you use little stupid Westphalian nation states. You guys, we can't trust you to fucking run your own shit because look what you've done. You're over. There's no and of course, you know." Um, Stalin didn't even do that in Europe uh, or in the West Eastern Europe. They kept the, the nation states, but they were, but that's because they had the, uh, the, the structure of the Soviet Union to sort of build on like the periphery where you just get like 
more and more formal autonomy as you get farther away from the metropole. Uh, but the U.S. could have carved up Europe, but it decided, no, these nation states have to be built back up because capitalism requires the state. Because at a fundamental level, there is no extracting uh, the market from the state institutions that allow it to exist. And so for capitalism to exist in these nodes and then connect to the American uh, supernode, they needed to be uh, sustained by political and economic institutions that are national in character. Because that is what the reality of European life reproduced. Nationality was real. It had been instantiated in the 19th century and then had been uh, ritually, violently reaffirmed by the world wars. So the state had to be re rebuilt. And as I said, it was rebuilt uh, on social democratic lines because of the power of the Western working class. You get a labor government take power in uh, in UK right as the war ends. The first majority labor government ever. They 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 say this is honestly the British suck obviously and they're and they're monsters like they're the people who birthed this demon into being. They're its most like sallow acolytes. They're the, they're the most uh, they're the most hollowed amongst us. Give them credit for instead of kissing fucking Churchill's ass for winning the war and letting him be uh, you know uh, prime minister for life. They turfed him out immediately as soon as the war was over. And they said, yeah, 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 blah, blah, blah. Let's have a national health service. And in France, now, but, you know, that's, that's the reactionary heart of, uh, of England, where, like, the, the radical working class is, is, very low, is, is a very low level of uh, influence and power. Now, in France, for example, that was occupied by the, by the uh, uh, Nazis and dominated by a Nazi puppet government, uh, the only real political force that had any legitimacy popularly left were the communists because they, instead of accommodating this one way or the other, had fucking gotten shot and shot Germans and, 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 and uh, persisted in resistance, persisted in resistance to uh, fascism, which totally uh, delegitimized de the bourgeois parties and representatives. Similarly in Italy. So you have a very powerful communist movement. Here, we get a higher level of uh, like social investment than in other places. Uh, but here, specifically in France and Italy, in addition to you know, just the, the uh, uh, organizational and uh, influential advantage of capital allied with the United States, like this state structure, this capitalist bourgeois state structure, is the one doling out um, Marshall Plan money, which is huge. We also had the other hand, the left hand of this process. If the right hand is the formal regimes of, uh, of economic power, the left hand, the sinister, the hidden hand is uh, military coercion. And uh, at this moment, it is clandestine because, you know, we're at the end of the cycle of, of conflict of World War One. It's going to rise up in a crescendo until you have the mass slaughter, the formal military mass slaughter of Vietnam. But it starts off with covert action. It starts off with... Uh, allying with the Corsican mobsters who controlled the Marseille ports to break the communist-led strikes in the port, uh, allying with the mafia in Italy 
to uh, bribe and uh, assassinate uh, the Christian Democrats into a victory over the communists? Creating uh, stay-behind networks of uh, formal military and uh, and military formal. It's essentially an alliance. All, all the Gladio uh, states are an alliance between formal regimes of coercion in in the uh, capitalist state structure, the military, and their equivalent in the uh, the shadow economy, the military of of criminality, which is organized crime. Organized organization is what concentrates uh, power. So organized crime and the military, and that combination helps prune the hedges of this uh, left wing alliance that you know asserts power, asserts for control everywhere uh, in Europe. Uh, and one interesting thing that I didn't really know, and that uh, they point out, is that uh, we think of the neoliberal formula as something that emerges in the seventies as a result of the those, the crisis then. But uh, uh, Pandich or Pandin point out that the birthplace of neoliberalism was Germany, West Germany after the war, uh, which at the time it wasn't even neoliberalism. It was called Ordo liberalism. Very cool no- name. Uh, and uh, the the early Christian Democrats who took power at the U.S. behest after the war uh, had a much more market oriented politics than the ones uh, in the other uh, former. Uh, combatants of Europe. And the reason for that is because the left had been exterminated in West Germany by the Nazis. And then the United States was formally occupying it militarily. The same wasn't true in other countries. And so they got a more uh, pure strain Keynesianism than West Germany did. But even in West Germany, you saw a welfare state emerge so that conflict does not explode. Because you're about, because you have this ever-present danger of too much crisis in the center of these countries means you're back to the conditions of World War II. You're back to a thing where there has to be a revolution or there has to be a war. The, the social forces that could guide it towards a revolution or, or, or another war have been uh, discredited by the disaster of World War II, leaving the only credible alternative, the forces internally in these societies that want to push for a goddamn revolution. And that is what the Marshall Plan did more than anything, was to prevent this revolution from happening. Because you had a situation in Europe after the war where capital is fleeing to the United States. Capital is getting the fuck out of Europe. And American private capital isn't bringing it back in. After the war, America... Foreign investment stayed in the Western Hemisphere, in the American sphere of influence, because it could. It was easy. It was the path of least resistance to Canada and to Latin America. Uh, Europe was way too risky for private money to go there. So you had this huge uh, uh, outflow of capital in these countries. That's a death spiral. The only way to, to get out of it is to either expropriate capital, which, of course, not an option, or do even more harsh austerity, which is going to give you a revolution. Can't have it. Can't have it. Can't have them commiserating. I can't have, I can't have, do more austerity, make them stand in line longer for biscuits. I can't, I can't have it. Like these guys, they just fought a war, a lot of them. They're just coming home with their guns over their shoulders. They're, they're, they, they've seen death. That's the thing. That's why that was such a moment of possibility is that you had these guys who'd been traumatized by the war, which is, you know, 
that ends up in the interwar period benefiting mostly reactionary politics because the left was cucked. But by the end of the war, Second World War, you had like a bunch of leftists who were ready to fight way more than had been before. But what made them make a deal instead of fight is because instead of that harshening austerity, Marshall Plan font fucking uh, uh, made it rain, prevented austerity, maintained levels of, of uh, income and consumption. But that was all public money. And this is a thing that and then they built up these states that have regulatory regimes that regulate capitalism, they, that, that uh, guarantee redistribution of profits, all stuff that a capitalist in his narrowest interest doesn't want, but which were necessary for the, con, uh, the continuation of capitalism, which is why you need that state capacity, which we have seen in America be dissolved by the post-70s world. Now we're in a situation where uh, the inherently uh, cannibalistic nature of capitalism that has uh, essentially always uh, is deferred through redistribution of surplus no longer has the surplus. So all of those, the, the, the surplus redirected politically is the uh, motor oil in the engine of capitalism. And the oil hasn't been changed since 1973, basically. So all of these fucking parts are just spraying sparks off of one another because the discrete interests of capital have to be short term. It's the state, which is just the capital like through a mirror. It's like the other lobe of the brain of capital, people who are capitalists and operate for capital's interests, but through the institutions of uh, bureaucracy and uh, politics rather than uh, – like ownership and management have a view of it that is more comprehensive and that can, that can intervene to sustain its longevity. Can't do that anymore. Which is why the longevity is not being sustained. And so this is a process. This liberalization of Europe hap- starts here. Like we have a social democratic treaty signed in the late 40s between a labor and capital in the Western Europe on the conditions imposed by the Marshall Plan, by this dollar hegemony, which said, for example, that every dollar of Marshall Plan money that a government of, uh, in this European country would get, they had to uh, commit to spending an equivalent amount of their domestic currency on projects that had to be approved by the United States. Like that were within a American-approved rubric of policy options. That's how they were able to direct this flow. But they didn't direct it towards creating like mini Somalias, like free market utopias, like the psychos who took over Iraq did after uh, the invasion there. Because they knew that that was not a way to create a stable state structure. People who the, – the psychos who, who, who took over the Iraqi government and the Iraqi uh, political economy in the, in the early ta- aughts genuinely believe that the way you stabilize an economy is by unleashing uh, uh, entrepreneurship or whatever else because they've been propagandized. They've been ideologically uh, processed into believing that so that they don't even know it's not in capitalism's interest to do that. It's not in the greater interest of the project of stabilizing Iraq as a node of American power projection in the Middle East, which is what we were trying to do there. And the very thing we did trying to make it happen undid it and made it impossible. 
because of those ideological blinders. Which is why it's so funny that Rumsfeld is the guy responsible for like the most a succinct expression of like the reality of 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 ignorance in our in our the functioning of our uh, you know in all of our social institutions, science, government policy, everything is is the unknown known or the unknown unknown. So they're creating these states that regulate capitalism in the interest of the combined class interest of American capitalism. Even though there are individual capitalists who are pissed about this, who don't want it to happen, who are trying to resist it. As I said, the same time this is happening, the uh, uh, Khrushchev, or I mean, after Khrushchev, uh, once this is like really this process take, takes a hold in the 50s, and you see this really work. Like, there's initially a terror that, oh God, what about uh, uh, what about these European economies? What if they can't uh, grow at the rate that they need to to keep redistributing, uh, you know, keep the capital flowing and keeping everybody relatively uh, socially stable and comfortable? Uh, trying to find this thing I wrote. What was it? I wrote something on one of these. I can't find. Is this it? Oh, I did this very poorly. I'm sorry. Uh, I forgot where I wrote it, but I, I remember what it is. So uh, the way they're able to do this, the way we're able to kickstart this thing, is not just putting in a bunch of money. Uh, it's by facilitating trade between European countries. So that instead of the U.S. just dumping a bunch of money into Europe and then them all just, like, distributing it and, you know, consuming... Uh, Exports from the United States, mostly, uh, they're going to be domestically producing. And the way to do that is if they're trading with each other, is if they're taking that money and they're buying stuff from each other. And the way that they facilitate that is creating a, uh, a, a clearinghouse where even though this is a dollar economy and everything is priced in dollars at the end of the day, uh, but the dollar is at this point scarce because all this capital is flowing to the U.S., uh, and there's not, there just aren't enough dollars, unless you want inflation, do you? Uh, to facilitate all of this European trade, there's a clearinghouse that allows uh, these countries to trade with each other in each other's devalued currency, because there is a huge uh, devaluation of European currencies that happens after the war, and the unpegging, the euthanization of the of the pound sterling, uh, which had been the uh, reserve currency uh, before the war. And, you know, Keynes fought for it, uh, fought for sterling. He told the Whitehall when he was trying to sell Redwoods to them that he fought for sterling. But at the end of the day, sterling was euthanized. But the British got a really good deal off it. They got, the same way the Dutch had earlier, they got to be bought out of their controlling share of global capitalism and then given a golden parachute. Like, the British, the British did that to the Dutch. And then... 
The Americans did it to the British. And they were able to build their welfare state. They were able to build their, uh, their NHS and their, and their estate housing. And they were able to build this you know, durable system on the back of a trade regime there. The U.S. basically uh, gave them favored status. Like the U.S. was trying to get rid before the war of the British tariff regime that like uh, favored that um, like that <clears throat> was that gave preference, I should say. They gave preference to trade within the Commonwealth, within the empire. Uh, and they created, you know, like uh, a more equitable uh, trade relationship after the war. But during the austerity years, the early austerity years of Britain, the U.S. suspended that and sort of did voluntary uh, trade restriction with England to help their domestic uh, economy uh, grow back up. And, you know, we owed it to them because it was the it's British systems of imperial and bureaucratic control that we then took to take over the world. Like the, the CIA was made by the Brits. They 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 taught us the, the, the statecraft necessary to have a meaningful, deep state with like a, a intelligence headquarters, which the U.S. didn't really have before World War Two. Uh, and also. Like these, uh, uh, this this economic structure created is is the vision of like the reformist minds of uh, of English political economy. The special relationship. I mean, think about it. Uh, the, the the glorious revolution is essentially like this this merger between uh, the Dutch and the English. Uh, capitalist classes, one of those inverted deals where, like, you you switch headquarters, you know, and that meant that the Dutch were no longer a colonial power, but they were able to maintain their dynamic trade economy in this in this uh, European system that is now headquartered in Britain. If the Dutch had held on, held on to North America, it would have probably gone the other way around. And probably on much more devastating conditions for the British because, uh, you know, the pitiably little island. But Britannia rules the waves. So so you have this new system where U.S. capital is flowing in. To, to make up deficits, to, to provide things like oil uh, and energy and food inputs, to allow capital elsewhere to go towards, uh, you know, investment in the economy, build and, uh, and, and the, all that money, the U.S. money stimulates demand for products, and they come from other European countries. And that, that those gears kick in to going, and the whole contraption starts flapping across. Uh, but of course, it's not just these countries that make up the post-war global uh, economic order. Uh, they have it has to extend elsewhere. Uh, like, for example, the deal the, the uh, Roosevelt administration makes with the House of Saud to uh, ensure access to uh, oil on American terms, which isn't so much about American consumption because that the U.S. is a, is is by far the world's largest oil exporter uh, before and during the war. But its domestic demand for oil is going to explode. 
Uh, so the, the oil that used to be exported is domestically consumed, and that Saudi Arabian oil can then be used to uh, fuel capitalism in Europe. But that's only possible because we create a uh, alliance between the you know the tribal uh, rulers of uh, of the peninsula that gives them you know privileged uh, power recognizes them as sovereign uh, in exchange for them being just a part of the U.S. Uh, like formal uh, global alliance. There's actually a funny thing in here where they point out that at the time, uh, coal and oil were in competition. And a lot of uh, planners said that they preferred oil because so many coal mines were uh, in communist countries. Whereas proven oil reserves at this point uh, are concentrated in places that the U- like the U.S. or places the U.S. could diplomatically uh, overall, like Saudi Arabia. And it's very important that this oil is secured because I said earlier, right, these economies are based on uh, filling the gap, the hole in the heart created by capitalist exploitation, right? What are we doing? What are these people being put to work for? They're being put for, put to work to build stuff for people to buy so they can feel better about their lives. And what is the thing, the one cons- uh, commodity that represents this entire commodity relationship. Does anyone know? The Ur commodity of the Fordist era. I said it, I gave it away right there in the name. The car, correct. The automobile. The personal automobile represents in commodity form all of the freedoms that are denied the worker. The freedom over time and space that are denied when you are forced to spend time in a space demand, determined by your boss. A vehicle allows you to traverse time and space in your own, at your own will, right? Because, like, nobody wants to go at foot speed anywhere. Nobody ever has. It's too slow. Especially in a mediated world where, you know, where, uh, where stimulation is easier to come by. You need speed to actually exert will. And so you can command will, demand, control the environment. Be the god that you can't be during your working time with a car. And it's big and it's expensive and they look different so your aesthetic preferences can be represented in them. There is a different style. And that style can reflect you as a, a point of at, at the level of identity, and then it can give you control over your environment, literally, over time and space. Because remember, like, what did what did restart the global economy? War armaments, big machines. That's what we had built our industrial economy around: producing tanks, airplanes, engines. And that had to be put to domestic use. They had to be switched to domestic uh, means quickly because we, we had, if, you keep, if you build militarily, you have to destroy it. That's the thing. That is the milita- that's the cycle of military expenditure. 
Like Hitler built, Hitler built tanks, and that means you have to use tanks. Now, of course, if you sell everybody a car, you get to the point where they run out of cars. Everyone's had a car, then you have a collapse. Unless more and more people are buying cars, younger and younger people are buying cars, new workers are buying cars. You know, unless it can it can operate in the logic of exp- of endless expansion. And so the automobile becomes the pivot of this global supply, this global capitalist uh, uh, trade network. The U.S. builds cars for American consumption more than anything, but also exports them. Europe, the European countries, the bigger ones, build cars for domestic consumption and also trade. Even in... And I sh- uh, so uh, while they're doing this in Europe with the cars and everything and trying to fit, create this industrial capitalism around uh, automobile cons- construction, which, again, how much at this point, right, we know what cars have done to the world. We know what car-based culture has done to community, to identity, to sanity, to the biome. We know. We know that it might. it's going to be a big part of what dooms us. And that is... Fundamental to capitalism, like they're looking for a solution to a, a problem. How do we how do we fuel this economy after this war? And because their assumptions are capitalism must be persisted, they create a short term fix that, in the long run, creates even greater contradictions. Yeah, like this is a good example. Somebody says, "So Cuba did this, right? Cuba actually did the deal where you take over the economy from a central position of planning and you socially." figure out what to do, right? Now, of course, their answer was partially uh, determined by the fact that the U.S. embargo meant that they weren't going to get enough, they were not going to get enough uh, materials to be able to build much. The U.S. made sure of that. So what did they do instead? What was something that could could be manufactured without imports? And the answer is uh, health expertise. You could democratize health so that larger and larger portion, a a state-directed portion of your population has the sort of detailed, hyper-expert understanding of the human body that can only be bought by the extension of surplus on it. People can't be doing other stuff. They've got to be fucking training to be doctors. And you take that surplus and you train people to be doctors. And actually, they've actually been able to turn this into a uh, a way to get capital into the country uh, by exporting um, doctors uh, to underserved countries. And the money that they get is some of it they get to keep, but a bunch of it goes back to the state, which for the most part, they are fine with because they understand that they wouldn't have their fucking uh, medical educations if the state had not given it to them. It gets called like slavery, like the Brazilians, uh, Bolsonaro kicked out a bunch of Cuban doctors who were serving like the deep interior of the Amazon where no doctors were uh, by saying like, oh, they're, they're making them slaves. They're stealing their, their uh, income. It's like they're, 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 they're paying for their education. 
the way that we're expected to just take out giant loans. So this, this idea of building up individual industrial economies wherever they can so that they can trade with each other is the superseding goal of U.S. policy at this time. So that even in Latin America, which had been the place that we had destroyed uh, all popular politics that demanded like control of resources because U.S. capital needed cheap access to their agricultural surplus. That was the whole open door policy that was like the fixation of the State Department during the 30s, keeping access to raw materials from Latin America at American dictated prices. That meant keeping the left in check. That meant propping up uh, dictators when you weren't overthrowing the governments themselves. Uh, But even during this period, not for a long time, but during this period specifically, uh, U.S. policy towards Latin America, where which was getting U.S. private investment when Europe wasn't, uh, was to encourage domestic production. This the 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 uh, developmentalist philosophy, the Keynesianism, basically of the developing world after World War II, was called uh, import substitution industrialization. Where because uh, the 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 answer, the non-communist answer to the challenge of how do you catch up to the West. From the from the you know the position of uh, of colonial stagnation that Latin American countries were in, and and African ones too, Asians as well, like the, the periphery, the, the global south. Um, uh, the reason that they were uh, in this prostrate position and they couldn't accumulate capital is because they were dependent upon industrial export imports. They had to import anything durable. Because all they had were their agricultural products, which were sold at cheap prices, which meant that nobody could buy uh, enough to sustain domestic production. So the people who could buy had to buy in imports, which means your balance of trade is fucked. You can never develop domestic capacity. Uh, So uh, that means that you needed a state project of uh, substituting imports with domestic production. Instead of taking taking an X. We're going to build X, and that means the big, the most, the, the most popular imports have to. There has to be an industrial policy of producing them domestically, and the U.S. during the fifties encouraged this. But of course, there is an inherent contradiction there that undoes the project that made it never really happen in Asia or Africa, and that is, at the end of the day, the U.S. needs those cheap resources. More than it needs those countries to have stable, uh, you know, industrial capitalist economies. Because the center is always going to have its stability prioritized over the periphery. So it sacrifices ISI in the third world. Because it can no longer be afforded. Meanwhile, in the, in the third world at this point, like, Africa and and Asia, the places that had been till very recently all been colonized by Europe, there were no developed state structures to build up. And so capital investment was minimal. Uh, And so you had a situation where the economy such as it existed was fixed into this 
uh, cycle of, of, of money going out the door as you produce cheap, uh, cheap agricultural products, cheap resources, uh, where all the profits are concentrated by the, the, the very narrow uh, political uh, class and bureaucratic class, uh, and, and like the large landowners, of course. Uh, and there's basically nothing left for a domestic uh, a consumer economy to buy. And that which can be bought has to be imported. And then that is the relationship between the, the real periphery uh, and, and, and the center for the rest of uh, – till this moment. You never have that moment of industrial production because they never get the conditions that allow for it, which are high trade barriers. The U.S. built its industrial economy with tariffs. England did, too. And as I said, uh, even the post-war world still has, uh, you know, uh, it does not have free trade. It has freer trade, but it does not have free trade. Meanwhile, the by the time you do have like sufficient state structures to assert, you know, a political project in the per, in the peripheral countries, by that point, uh, the regime is uh, actually no. There's it's totally free trade, and you get to negotiate. You get to negotiate from the same atomized position against concentrated capital that the individual worker does against uh, a, an owner of a factory. Which is why China is important, because China is the only country, the only country in the colonized world that spent the 20th century building state capacity, building industrial capacity, and not having it imposed on them outside from the West. And yes, the reason for that is it's gigantic and it's been a unified political unit or it's been a coherent political uh, 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 entity for 2,000 years, which is not true of any of the other places, including India, by the way. India didn't come into being as its own thing, really, until the Raj. 5,000 years, yes, whatever. I don't buy any of that stuff, by the way. The idea that there's uh, an extension of like uh, Chinese state uh, structure that extends like into the deep like iron uh, uh, like uh, Neolithic, don't buy it. Sorry, they're very precocious with state production, uh, state state uh, uh, development, but uh, no, they they started off the same place that everybody else did, uh, and it was all trial and error. I think they did get it first, and they were able to sustain it longest. But then you're just trying to – all that is is it's an attempt to, you know, affirm the authority of the existing structure, which to me, I'm sorry, that doesn't affirm shit. I don't care how long fucking standing the thing is at the end of the day because these things have to be transcended. I'm sorry. The rest of uh, the colonized world is uh, – is to the is to the West as like a concentration of a constellation of social of a if you define the West as like a constellation a constellation 
of uh, of cultural values, uh, economic and political uh, interlocking regimes of power and, and structure. Uh, the there's no other state but China that can stand to them. Uh, of course. Japan, which is basically China, but like packed into a little archipelago in, the, in that it's this, you know, hugely dense concentration of, of people and therefore capacities. They at, at, end up somewhere between Europe and the third world after the war uh, because their working class has been decapitated by fascism, just as Germany's had their post-war uh Accommodation with labor is much more business friendly. Uh, and the U.S. also, by the way, does gladio shit in Japan. The Yakuza, that, that was stood, the Yakuza as we understand it, organized crime in Japan, was stood up by the United States occupying uh, forces. Like they made formal and informal agreements with like networks of smugglers uh, and, and like black marketeers. Uh, who they gave state sanction to the activities of because they would kill communists. And they ended up becoming like a, a fucking arm of the state, like a, a, they're the most formally powerful of any of the organized crime structures that emerged after World War II. Like in Italy, they're a parallel state, but they're still all like formally, uh, illegal, but like Yakuza's sponsor uh, like charity shit like formally in uh, in Japan, you know, they, they're, they're quasi-legal uh, uh, corporate entities. And that's because it happened those things emerged simultaneously. What we're having in countries like Mexico is where this like these structures are just, they exploded into existence, really, only in the past 30 years. And so that means that they are they are not been able to be assimilated into the structures of the state. They've just overtaken it almost overnight. And that's not, that is not a uh, stable arrangement. That's why it's so horrifyingly violent there relative to the Yakuza. So Japan doesn't get a Marshall Plan, but what Japan gets instead is, during the Korean War, Japan is the main staging area for America's military forces, which means a huge, huge infusion of U.S. money in the form of the, the, the spending power of American uh, military forces who are there on leave or who are there uh, in transit or in support roles. Uh, all of the, the construction that is, uh, that is necessitated by these guys uh, that economic activity is the infusion that, that stimulates uh, domestic production in Japan. Six billion dollars is, is pumped into the Japanese economy by uh, the U.S. military intervention in Korea, which at the time is gigantic and helps helps uh, do the same uh, prop. The Keynesian uh, pump priming that Marshall Plan money does in Europe and that uh, private investment does in, in the Americas.
Okay, so next week we will do... I'd, oh, next week. I think I might skip next week. I have a, a thing. I'll be out of town towards the end of the week. So when we come back, two weeks hence, I might do another stream like on Wednesday or something, but I will not be, uh, it would not be the book because I want to give the whole week for the, for, to read the two chapters because, you know, I know it's impossible to read. So I want to give anybody who does read the book a chance to catch up. So, uh, we'll skip a week and then we'll come back with chat, uh, part, part three, the two chapters that make up part three. Okay. Well, I hope everybody has a nice weekend. It looks, it's going to be beautiful here. Hope it's going to look nice where you are. Hope everybody keeps it sleazy. Peace and chicken grease.